I wonder why you're here. Not here. I wonder why you're here. Uh, why do you exist? Why do you even exist? Have you ever stopped long enough to listen to that question in your head? Why? We've all asked it at some point. Why am I even here? What does it mean? Why now? Why here? Why in this life? Why when the whole world's being turned on its head, am I here? This sense of unable to, being unable to answer that question is at the heart of so much hopelessness and uh, the roots of so many, so many people's experience of depression and anxiety. It's not always, obviously, but, but often that's the beginning. That's often where the thoughts begin. That's where the pathway starts, a lack of hopelessness. And so we've been looking the last couple of weeks at uh, a season called Reasons. We've been through Entheos. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been, we, we had a, just a really great experience of six or seven weeks looking at Entheos, the God within, what drives us from within. And now we're looking at, well, what's the purpose of all this? And a couple of weeks ago, I started off and it was only going to be one message and, and it's, it's been blown out a little bit. Um, so I want to give a quick recap of that because today's message sits on top of all that we've, we've gone through before. So if you are new to us, uh, all those messages are online. But um, we started with a framework because often the conversation of why you exist starts where we're going to start today, but we're two sessions into this already. But we gave you the overarching mandate from Genesis 1.28, God's plan, his, his will for shalom and kingdom has never actually changed. It began in Genesis 1, uh, verse 27, 28. He says, now look, go. It's beautiful here in Eden, shalom, uh, paradise, where God is. Um, that's where things are as they should be. Now go out where it's not like this and make it look more like this. Where, where there's chaos, bring shalom. Let, let it be down here as it is up there. And that was the mandate. And then the fall came, redemption through Christ had to happen. And so we talked about these four foundational uh, pillars. One was uh, to love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. Uh, and nothing, nothing you consider, no logic path that you take is going to make any lasting sense unless that one is not only squared away, but the driving dynamic in your heart. Are we loving God with all we have? In the wake of that, do we love people? Uh, and then last week, uh, Murray Avril came, and I hadn't briefed Murray up on this, actually. I hadn't briefed him up one bit about what we were doing, and he preached into what was the fourth of those pillars, and that is to go and make disciples. These are biblical mandates. Love God, love people, make disciples, and there was one more that we hadn't gotten to, and that's where we're going to start today. But what we've got to understand about all of us and discerning what our purpose is, is we have a worldview, and it's our worldview about the way we see things, what we think is real, what is true, what is valid. In this sort of a room, largely we'll assume we're all thinking much the same thing there. But we have people from all sorts of walks of life. We have a couple from Southport Church of Christ here today, and they don't think like anyone else on the planet. Um, we have Baptists, we have Pentecostals, Presbyterians, Brethren, we have unbelievers, people who don't, haven't been brought up in church and still don't know what it's all about. All of you are all in the room and we all start with an imprint of a worldview about what we think is true and what is right that's come from that. And so whenever we start to look at this whole idea of why do I exist, it's sitting on that whole idea of worldview. That my reason for existence and what actually is existence. And so when we start there as Christian folk, our questions need to start from, well, how do we see ourselves plonked into this worldview that I have? Who am I? Or uh, whose am I? Who do I belong to? 
Or do we have an atheistic sort of mindset? Well, nothing really matters. I can't make a difference, so I live for pleasure. And, and uh, that ends up in its own sort of cul-de-sac of life. But this is where it all starts. And so this fourth purpose fits into the other three, but it really bases a lot on worldview. And it's number four is to be deeply committed to the church. The fourth pillar, love God, love people, go and make disciples, but be committed, deeply committed to the local church. Or not the local church, not, not the church little c, the capital C church, God's body of believers everywhere. So Jesus made this specific mandate. If you read writings like uh, John Stackhouse from Regent College, he really promotes this sort of an idea as a, as a redemptive m- mandate. It's come because there was a fall. It's come because Jesus has now come and redeemed. And because of the outflow of that in this phase of history, there's a redemptive mandate upon all of us. And he said, Jesus said, a new command I give. So he's This is Jesus who wasn't a law guy in that sense. He's bringing grace. He says, now I'm putting a new one upon us. Love one another. And he's talking to the disciples here. He's in in the room with with his gang. You guys have to love one another. Just as I've loved you, so you must love one another. So why did he go there? Why couldn't he just stick with number two, you know, love everybody? Why did he go there? Well, it's because there's something about this group of people. Perhaps not this group of people on Sunday that's here at Kenmore Church of Christ, but this grouping of his, if I could use it in the word correctly, the, the whole Catholic Church, not the Catholic, you know what I mean, the, Catholic, the umbrella of the church, the broad umbrella of all of God's people. He said, you guys have to learn to love one another because there's something that happens when you do. And the Greek word or the Hebrew word was ihad, it's, it's composite unity. And it was Jesus' final prayer. He said, I just... If we could all just stop and breathe this one in, that you would love one another, that you would be one as I am with the Father and the Father is with you and you are all together, this composite unity, because you can't be who you are unless you are with others. You can't be who you are as an independent pop in the church on Sunday, leave guy. It doesn't work like that. It can't work like that. That's why this cannot be the only expression of church. An hour on Sunday isn't it. It's vital to what we do. It works for us and it meets so many needs, but it can't be just it. There's 167 hours of the week where we need to be one. See, right now there's only one person using his gift and everyone else is watching. That's not church. This is an event. This is a thing that we do, a synergy of faith where things happen here that can't happen out there normally. But church is when we all come together and we all use our gifts, we all contribute We're all breathing in that same presence of God and living out the flavour that comes from that. And so I'm not going to over-prioritise this right now because I want to talk into the ramifications of that. But the bottom line here is that when you find your people, your people, your tribe, you've found your purpose. You don't need to look too much further than that. Once you find your people, your purpose will be found within that. We're always looking for a greener field, for a next step of calling. But God's calling on our life is all about context. We think it's about what's coming. Lord, open a door into something else. But calling is not about tomorrow. Calling is about who you are now in the context that you are. And that will determine the trajectory of what comes next. But you can't have your mind set on what's next. When you find your people, you've found your purpose. And that's, it's just something that the body of Christ needs to permeate and work it through that we are who we are only in the context of other people and living for them. So they were the four pillars. So I just want to, I want to move on from that, but, but I can't overstate 
because we want to just move on, but we can't move on. We've got to sort of move up or, or build upon this foundation. I even saw this. I hate, um, I hate it when preachers like me get up and give the, the, the allegory, the underworked allegory from their home, um, you know, the story of this. But yes, I'm going to do it now um, because I was at home the last couple of days and I don't often get a chance just to stop and do stuff, but I was, I've been painting because we've, we've been doing some renos. And I'm a, I'm a painter. I, I do painting sort of all right. I, I know, the, know the way you do painting. But um, so we've got, a, we've got a couple of plastered walls and, and there's all the stuff there. And um, I popped in the Bunnings uh, to grab my, my undercoat and, and the, the top coat. Normally you prioritise the top coat, hey? You normally go, I've got to get the best there is, Dulux, Torbins, whatever, the really good stuff with just the right colour on it set and I'll just get some dodgy undercoat and uh, it's just got to seal the thing and then we move on. But I actually did the invert. I, I went top notch with the undercoat because I saw it. It had four in one. Four in one. Not three. Like I used to go, this thing had four. <laughs> and I had to write them down just to remember what they were. And I can't even find my notes now, but, but it was primer, sealer, um, primer, sealer, undercoat, and anti-mould. <laughs> this thing cost 20 bucks a tin more than anything else. I thought, this is going to be awesome. And then I just bought some dodgy old overcoat, you know. But I put the undercoat on the raw plaster and the raw, and, and if anyone's ever done painting before, you understand, it just soaks it up. And when you, there's nothing worse than the undercoat and the first coat of paint. There's nothing, because you've done all the work and it looks horrible. It's just looked mm, patchy and horrible. I did this one coat of undercoat and Trish and I just sat back for a couple of hours and just went, that is awesome. Like, that is the best undercoat I've ever seen. It looks like, it's almost, we shouldn't paint that. <laughs> that, that foundation, here we go, the four-in-one foundation. Oh, oh, it was so good. It didn't matter what I put on the wall. And I'm normally a three-coat guy, three-coat of the, of the colour. We just put one coat on, sat back and went, there is a God somewhere. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. Save myself 70 bucks because I only had to do one coat. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Isn't it true that if you haven't got the foundation set, maybe, th does this relate to makeup? <laughs> does, that, does that allegory work? I want everyone to be included right now. I don't know. <laughs> when the foundation is set, you don't need to keep piling stuff on again and again and again, right? Because the foundation's set. You don't need three coats, baby. Just give it one. <laughs> I'm talking about paint, Kate. Stop it. Just get the foundation right. All right, I think we've got it. I think we've got it. The foundation matters. Nothing else about what you put on next, that unique colour of who you are. Um, <laughs> all right, I've lost the crowd. I've lost the crowd. We're going to move on to something biblical now. The thing is about what we've been talking about is there's three layers, and next week we're going to get to the third layer. But most conversations start on this layer that we're going to talk about now. Um, but if we start talking about the uniqueness of who we are in life, which is what today is really all about, um, if we do that in the absence of those four pillars, love God, love people, love the church, go and make disciples, if that ceases to be the base upon which we're built, we still lose the plot. We still lack the moral compass. See, layer two needs layer one or layer two goes wild and layer one needs layer two or it becomes theoretical and irrelevant. I mean, like how do I go and make disciples when I'm working 60 hours a week as a salesman? You know, it, it lacks the connection with life. And so 
This layer that we've spent those, the last few weeks on only answers one half of the question that we normally ask in life. And sometimes this question comes out verbally, sometimes it's unresolved, we haven't given it words, but it's what am I going to be focused on? What am I called on? And this next layer that we're going into says, what am I going to be, what am I going to be focused on in the context of where I find myself now? Because that's what we're really asking when it comes to calling. Who do I... Who am I now, given all that I'm living in in this life right now? And so God's calling relates largely to context. But what we're going to see is that who you are, who God has made you to be and who life has made you to be and who you have made yourself to be through hard work, will strive, will always give internal pressure to rise to the surface in whatever context you find yourself in. So you'll find that whoever it is, and we're going to use... Uh, an old acronym called SHAPE. I've never used it before because I was just sort of, it was just too old, but it sort of works for us today. But this shape of who you are will always try to rise to the surface regardless of your context. Biblical example. Let's look at King David. Long before he was King David, he was just David, son of Jesse. He was actually more David, son of Jesse than he was his own guy. He was just a young guy. He was the last in the family line. Shepherd, go out, look after the sheep. But there was something about this guy hardwired into his DNA uh, that he was, a, he was a, a, a worshiper and a warrior. From his youngest days, he couldn't help picking a fight just to win. He just liked to kill things. It's just something about, you, you look at his story, he just likes destroying people or animals. Whatever got in his way, it was like him or them. But he was also... You know, paradoxically, he was a worshipper. He just couldn't help himself wherever he was, if he was in the fields or, or in battle, whatever, he would just worship. So he, he learned in the end how to play his 12-string guitar, his, his old lyre thing, and he, and, he, and he just found himself overflowing this. So when word first got out about him in 1 Samuel 16, he, his reputation as this guy was already there. So he had no qualifications as a, an army general. He had no, nothing. He, he just looked after sheep. But his reputation was this in verse 18. One of the young men answered uh, an inquiry that was being held. Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valour. Now, when I say man, he was like 14, 15 at this point. So he's a man of valour, a man of war. So he'd never fought in a war, but he's already a man of war at that age. Prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. How did that reputation get out? He's stuck in the back blocks. This young kid is not long through puberty and he's known as a man of war and the presence of God is with him. Well, we learn the secret a bit later when he, he talks about his own story. He says, oh, it's not a problem. When I'm guarding a sheep and, and singing worship to God, if a bear comes up, I'll, I'm at the thing because I can see a meal, not a, not a challenge. Kills the bear, kills the lion with his bare hand. Who does that? Like, why? Scare the thing away. Now, who goes chasing after the lion? It's like, man, he's going, awesome. I'm going to worship God through killing something. It's like, <laughs> I don't know how this guy's wired, but I guess it was, maybe it was more common in those days. But this is how he began. So obviously life, as, as the shape that's within him and the context that he would find himself in, wherever he found himself, up would bubble this worshipping warrior. No matter what stage of life or what career he was in at whatever point of time, whether he's stuck out in the desert or he's in... Saul's court or became king one day, it's still the same guy. Look at him uh, 40 odd years later, maybe more. And he's a psalm writer. In Psalm 63, he puts these things together. He says, My mouth 
will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. So there's the worshiper. He just can't help himself all day. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. This is the same breath. But the king shall rejoice in God. It's like, is this guy bipolar? It's just, it's just the way he's wired. I guess it was politically correct to be like that back then. But the, you can see the principle here. Whatever your context, your shape will seek expression. This is, it's going to find its own true north. Regardless of all the forces that pull on you, like a spider web of life, might be family pressures, work pressures, mental pressure, all the stuff that you're under, all that spider's web of equilibrium will find itself as it resists against the strength of who you really are and it rises up within you. You will rebend your environment to fit in with who you are, or it will rebend you. Sometimes there's room for both of those things. But when it, whatever your context, your shape will try and do that. But the greater the resistance that we find to that, the greater the tension you'll feel in your own life. So this becomes your experience now. You might be in a workplace. Or you might be in some, a situation relationally, at home or whatever, and you just find yourself, I'm always feeling residual tension with this position. This situation I find, it's not me. Sometimes you're in your sweet spot, but most of us aren't most of the time. The real context of life is we've got all these, and I'm doing what I have to do just to get by. Because this whole idea of what shape do I fit into, this is, it almost feels like a luxury sometimes. In years gone by, people just didn't go there with this sort of conversation. It was just like, I've just got to turn up, I've just got to do life, I've got to live, I've got to raise my kids and die, and, that, and that's it. I've gotten by without dying too young. It was like I had no choice to, to consider back then would have been regarded as an entitled view. I need to fit in, or the world needs to fit in with my shape. You know? But you know, Gen Y is all grown up now, and so life's reformed itself, and we have to consider this stuff more and more. And life for us is luxurious in that sense. We get these choices with our careers and with our life. But the, but the more tension that you feel where it's out of sync with who you are, the greater that tension, that's the thing that your shape is going to try and resolve. Now, it'll either resolve or, or it will resolve you. So you'll either grow and adapt or you'll grow and adapt your, your situation or the situation will, will dislike you so much because it's feeling the tension too and it will ask you to sort of come off that team, so to speak, or you will do the same thing. So we've got to discern, am I feeling tension because it's, this isn't what I'm designed to be and to do? Am I feeling this tension and this tension is good for me because tension can be very good for us? You can't grow unless there's tension. You won't move unless there's something drawing you to do that. We don't voluntarily go into stretching situations normally. So is this tension working for me to make me into more of who I should be? Is it, is it a growth thing or is this tension a problem that needs to be solved? So we need to reconcile, is this to the point where this tension is now unhealthy and it's going to break me or I'm going to break it? Or is it a problem that needs to be solved and I need to change this situation in my life because it's no longer acceptable uh, for the long term. So in the, as I'm talking through these, these elements, consider that. And I've got to go through them quick. How did it end up so late, Zorn? It's always, always a sermon that's got to be cut short, eh? It's all right. There's no kids' church, so I can actually go long. So let's dig in very quickly. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
I don't understand this. I don't pretend to understand this. Where is workmanship, so we're created into a certain shape and we contribute to that, but we're created into Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So I don't know where free will and choice works into this whole web of predestination, and I don't really have to, because all I need to consider is, am I being who God's called me to be in the context in which he's placed me right now? That's all that matters. And I've used this quote before, but it was so wise, it still resonates in my soul. When a certain president got voted in in recent history, and half of us were saying this is God's man for the job, and the other half was saying it's the Antichrist, someone asked a really great theologian, is this person God's person for the White House? He said, it's an irrelevant question. All that matters is, is he being God's person today in that office? And that's all that matters about our calling. All we can do is steward today. We can only steward today and be God's person in that situation. So let's go through this acronym of S-H-A-P-E. S stands for spiritual gifts. And and I'll just spend a moment on this one because this reflects sort of the obviousness of the godness aspect of our calling. Some of the other elements are more about who are we and such. But this one, spiritual gifts, talks into the fact that God's anointing, his spirit is within me and, and his grace is making a difference. 1 Peter 4.10 says, uh, each has received a gift, a charis, the word is in Greek, used to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 1 Corinthians 12.7, to each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So that's crystal, crystal clear. You have been given at least one spiritual gift. The word here is grace. God has given you unique grace, a unique enablement. Grace means Uh, an external empower that brings about an internal change. So there's something about what God has given you that changes you and enables you to do what you can't do on your own. So we've all been given this, but but whenever this term is brought up in Scripture, it's always in the reference of the body of Christ and the fact that we've been given so that we may give. So the gift is given so that we may steward that grace and release it to edify up other people. And it's a key waypoint of your spiritual formation. One, one key waypoint is that we learn how to overcome the flesh and not live from the, 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 our bodies and our personality and all the lusts and so on of that. That's a key waypoint. Another one is to understand then what is my gifting that God's given me and how do I work in that anointing and how do I do that uh, and get better and grow in that. And we see in Scripture that the, the obvious and in practice, the obviousness of the gift of the Spirit that we all have... The, they, they become more obvious in environments where there's more faith. There's a connection between faith or an environment of faith and the obviousness of God's gifting in our life. Paul says you use your gifts in proportion to your faith. It's a fascinating dynamic. In other words, grace comes through faith, Ephesians 2.8. That's the context of, of the, one, the other verse we've just written in, in, read in 2.10. We are his workmanship created for good works in the context of We are saved by grace through faith. So these two elements work together. We want to access more of this grace and enablement than we grow in our ability to rely on it through faith. So as we rely more and more on God, James articulates it to say we receive more grace. Some people will have a problem with that concept, but it's worth wrestling with. And so there are different aspects. Everyone has different grace. Not, one, not every single gift is in every single person and all that kind of, we can have a long discourse about that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a unique grace. And my sort of theology on this is the, 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 the definitive lists in scripture are not meant to be definitive. They're not written as definitive. They're written to give examples from the day. 
So here are the different types of grace that we see. And there may be different types of grace today. Certainly all that you find in Scripture and probably more. And some great theologians have really teased that out. Romans 12, 6 says, We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And so we at some point in our spiritual formation need to grapple with what, is, what are the giftings in my life. Now, um, as an augmentation of today, online on our website... Uh, and you'll get a link to this tomorrow as well, at kenmore.church forward slash S-H-A-P-E, shape, kenmore.church forward slash shape, um, there's an inventory that you can download um, that helps you, an assessment in all these elements, S-H-A-P-E, to have a quick assessment, and it'll help you with this whole idea of spiritual gifts uh, and what, where God may be gifting you, but it, it, it may just give you some direction on that part. I need to move on. Second one is heart. Heart. This is talking essentially in this context about passion. Now, we're not all passionate people, but the things that we are passionate about will drive us. We're not all passionate people, but we all hold things dear. So we're talking about the things that really do sit in that space. You can tell what holds us dear because when they're threatened, we'll arc up. We'll react against that. That's often the the easiest way. If someone threatens your core value, Goliath threatened young David's core value. He was blaspheming God and his people. I'm not existing in that context. Either he's dying or I'm dying, but we're not going to share the same oxygen tomorrow. That was driven by a core value out of this guy. There was just no way he was going to compromise. And when you get to know the irreducible core of who you are, it's incredible power. That's the heart. So you can ask yourself, what am I passionate about? What stirs me up? A is for abilities. Abilities. This is where the human side comes in because God partners with it. See, David wasn't born um, being able to play the harp. He wasn't born with a spear in his hand. He started small. He probably picked a fight with his brothers and and was taught a a psalm or two by his mum. I don't know, but he would have grown the skills wrapped around the heart that drove him. And so we play our part in growing these things. The irony in all this for me is that there's a real paradox because uh, God won't call you to do anything that you can do uh, on your own strength. So if God's calling you into something, it'll be something you can't do. And yet he requires us as stewards of grace to be faithful in growing our skills and expertise to be stewards of the things. It's that wineskin illustration. The wine is there, the grace is there, but there's always needs to be a wineskin to steward that wine out into the world. So our abilities uh, need to be known and to grow. Personality is the next one. P is for personality. So we're talking there about uh, your makeup, introversion, extroversion, your temperaments. Are you people-oriented? Are you task-oriented? Sanguine, if you understand that terminology, peaceful, detail-driven, creative, sensitive, bold. There's all these different personality traits that make a difference. And why does it make a difference? Well, in a local church, if you don't actually like human beings, we're not going to put you on the connections team. (laughs) And apparently not everyone does. So we put you on the tech team. (laughs) Hey, that sounded like a negative. That's not negative. It's just that they're thoughtful and they're creative and they're normally introverted and they're peaceful and they're pastoral and and they... I would be on that team and still love humans, you know, but um, you you put people where it just makes sense, where you don't put... Uh, an introvert on an extrovert requirement and so on. There's an obviousness about that. So personality is a good thing to understand. Experiences is the last one. There's events and circumstances 
which just mark your life. There are things that will become your heart because of what you've experienced. They cast a, a sort of a shadow over your life or perhaps a light over your life, the things in your history. Things like the love of a parent um, who was just always uh, present for you and edifying. Or might be the invert, the pain of abuse and neglect and so on. Uh, seeing how generosity can change a life or perhaps you grew up in, a, in an environment where there was no social services or uh, lack of discrimination. You, you've understood the glass ceiling of the classes and so on. So these things fuel your passion. The kids are enjoying this service, I can tell. It's all right, it's holidays. We do this. All right, so let's land this at some level. Always remember the foundation, those four pillars, love God, love people, make disciples, build up the church. That's the foundation. Upon that becomes your shape. Sometimes you just feel like a square peg in a round hole, though. Your shape just doesn't fit your life. And sometimes you just need a God encounter or an experience or a logic from God because you feel like your shape is bending you all out of shape. And I think most of us experience these moments. I just want to give you a couple of stories because I just, as I was writing this, I remembered a, a, a good friend of mine and he loved people. He still loves people. That was his drive and he became a pastor. And the shame of it was the system of church was breaking him. And that's the reality sometimes. And, and you, can, you can love people, but sometimes being in a leadership role is not the best thing to do for that. Because often the thing that you love to do, the, the environment conspires to take you away from the thing you love. And there's politics and there's problems and there's all the stuff that comes against. But he was grappling with that, but he was, it was almost like a square peg in a round hole. Have you ever felt that way? You think, I, I'm, I got in this for this, but, but it's just the tensions are too much. And he had a powerful encounter with God. A powerful encounter, so powerful that it undid him. It undid his ability and desire to want to constrain himself anymore to the systems of, of man and, and, and not be who God's made him to be. And it was a freeing experience for him because he, he realised, I don't have to be what anyone says I have to be. I have to be who God's made me to be. And so he left the ministry. You think, you love people, but you had to get out of ministry to do that. Not everyone has that story. Uh, it's okay. But now he's living a life of just incredible fruit because he just loves to walk the streets and just bump into people with divine appointments and have a word of knowledge for them and a, and a moment of grace and to give them a meal. And he, he just wants to care without the constraints of the system. And you might, under, you might know what that feels like. You feel like that square peg in a round hole and it's, it's not growing you anymore. It's actually destroying you. This needs to be confronted and dealt with. And the resolve needs to be to know what your shape really is and then understand your context and go, maybe I need a, a context change. There's a thing called necessary endings, where a context needs to be moved out of and a new, a new season entered into it. But some of us just need to recommit our life and all they have to God, to invest, to invest what God has invested in you into the world. I'm hoping this isn't your experience of church solely. Come and enjoy this. Yeah, we, love, we love our Sundays, but your experience of being the church is, is not predominantly here on Sunday. I remember another guy that I, I know and I'd taken him through the shape course. There's a whole course wrapped around this a couple of years before and he brushed it off. He was a successful businessman running a multinational company and he said, don't give me Rick Warren's material. I'm, a, I'm beyond all this, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
That's great. He came to one of our weekends and, and another guy that, uh, that experienced that real overwhelming trumping power where God just suddenly just trumps you. You, know, you, you can throw me whatever cards life has dealt. You can, you can, you can steward all the pain you like, but I'm just going to trump it anyway. And he just sat there under God's power for two days. You couldn't talk to him. You couldn't get any sense out of him. Suddenly God broke through, knocked him off his high horse like in a poor sort of way. And he left there not even embarrassed. He was just undone. But the next I heard of him, he, he was out on Friday nights, I think it was, feeding the poor uh, with, with sandwiches that he'd made himself. This is a guy running a multinational company. 100 hours a week staff, he had shares and companies all over the show. But he set aside that time. I just, I just, he didn't ask permission. He didn't tell anyone. It's just where we heard about him. Next thing, we, where's, where's this guy gone? He's, he's gone feeding the poor. We didn't even know he could butter bread. The sandwiches weren't much good, but the heart was awesome, you know. Next thing you know, he's bought an old combi and he stripped the thing out to make it into a, into a servery. And now he's driving down to these suburbs and he's, he's handing out. Then he got some helpers. Next thing you know, he's got a fleet of these things because he's that guy, you know. And then he's got the schools involved and everyone's coming because his heart was just overflowing and you couldn't contain the energy of this guy because he'd found his core he'd, and, and was activated by God now, not, not the requirements of humanity and the requirements of our culture. At, sometimes that, that bow just gets pulled and it comes undone and you realise there is more to life than playing the stock market and, learn, and learning more about management. Now it's about life and it's not just someone else's life, it's someone that I know and it's face to face and I know what matters to them. And this it begins to fuel and that sort of cause the body of Christ goes, yeah, I needed that. I'd forgotten that. And they're getting on board. Then our schools are getting on board. This thing's getting out of control because it begins to resonate as a wineskin is supposed to flex with its culture. The wineskins of the church started moving in sync. It's still going today, this ministry, I think about 15 years on, because he can't stop it when it's from the heart. Last I heard of him, I thought he, I think he'd bought a hospital that was up for sale to make as a respite for these people on the street and as a housing for them. This guy was out of control. But if he, if he just had to make sandwiches and give them out, he would still be doing that. And I wonder what it would look like for you if, if God pulled the string on the bow of your life. You know that thing that just keeps it all together? I'm just doing what I have to do because that's what's expected of me in my life. But there's a shape that he's been forming in you that's so much more than that and you won't even find out what it is until the string gets pulled. Now, none of this, I'm just following what the Spirit's saying today. None of this is scripted. But I think we just need to allow the Lord to pull the string on our life and unwrap the gift. Because I know very few of us, it's okay, don't know what our gifting and our anointing and our calling is. Because we haven't felt the luxury of being able to go there. But today, let's go there. So can I just ask, I'll get, oh, the band's up, half up. Come on up, guys, and, and let's just come together in prayer right now and, and, uh, and invite the Lord to begin to deal with that. Let's just take this holy moment. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. Just come and do in us what the world won't allow to happen. 
Lord, we pray for a God encounter right now. Lord, I pray that you would invade our hearts right now because we're all here and there's literally nothing better for us to do. So God, just come. Lord, I pray you'd strip away the expectations of the people around us, of the careers that we've invested all those years into, of the, of the, the constant fight to be on the right rung of the ladder, to wear the right clothes and have our kids behave just right and all that sort of stuff. Lord, just strip all that away right now and it's just you and me. It's just us with the perspective of forever, of what's going to matter when I'm dead and gone. What did you design me to do? What have you designed me to become? Lord, you've put in us a heart. You've put in us a shape. You cared about it enough to write a scripture to confirm it. We are your workmanship all unique, no one the same. You didn't get the cookie cutter out, get it right first time and just keep doing it. You've just kept doing someone new every time. But Lord, all these people here are created for right now at a time where the stakes are sky high for Christianity, where cultural faith is disappearing and yet true core faith is reappearing and the true phoenix is rising from the ashes of what is Christian life, where it's time for the real believers, the real disciples to stand up and show what it can look like when grace empowers a people. So Lord, I pray that you would just look at the, just picture yourself now as a gift all wrapped up with the bow on top. Pretty impressive you are, but you want to get let out. You're not interested in the wrapping anymore. It's time to unwrap the gift. And only God has the authority to pull in that bow. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would pull that bow right now and release the ribbon and allow your gifts to be unwrapped. Lord, I pray for a 24-hour window, particularly for your people here, that as you unwrap the gift, that they would take the time to invest in you and their calling, to discern who they are, who you've called them to be, and whether their current situation is the right fit for them. But if it is, if they've found their people, show them their purpose. There is no spectator gift on the list. We all partake. We all receive gifts. So Lord, I pray that your gifts would be fanned into flame. Fan them into flame in this house so your people can go. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, if you feel stuck with that, if you'd like some ministry into that space, we're going to have the team, prayer team over here praying. Many of us feel stuck in our life. If you'd like breakthrough, there's a real anointing to break through out of that. Let's break the constraints of the world over us. Get the team to pray for you and cut that loose in Jesus' name. Bless you. Let's worship and close off.